in order to do what disciples do, we need the other people that God has brought together who are working at following him. Now this morning, we're going to focus on one responsibility, and it is that if we're going to come with Jesus, we're responsible for welcoming one another, for welcoming others who also want to come along with him. And, and the Apostle Paul is going to teach us this morning, uh, but we're also going to learn from Jesus. That sounds like a good idea, don't you think? Yes. If you and I were together in the first group of followers that he was building, one thing that would have made us uncomfortable about Jesus was just how welcoming he was. If we were really with him, there would be other things also that made us uneasy, but that would be one thing about the way that he held the door open for people that we would rather not see come into this community with us. And, and this is a thread that runs throughout the stories of his ministry. It is that over and over again, from every quarter, there was a lot of discomfort caused by the fact that Jesus didn't seem, well, he didn't seem to withhold the old boundaries that kept the outsiders out, and he was letting the wrong people in. Uh, from outside of the community that he was building, from the religious leaders in his day, the criticism was direct and it was frequent. Uh, this fellow, they would say, this guy welcomes sinners and immoral people. He sits right beside prostitutes and tax collectors at the dinner table. Uh, it's just too much. If he had more regard for those boundaries that we've used over these many centuries really to define us, then maybe we would take him seriously. But the way this guy opens the door to everyone is just too much. Tell us who's in and who's out, and then maybe we'll want to learn from you. Uh, that's how it went with the religious leaders in Jesus. Listen now, it wasn't only from the outside, but it also was from within his community of disciples that there was resistance to just how welcoming Jesus was. Uh, maybe you know that there was a day when people were bringing uh, children to be with Jesus. And the disciples, just like everyone else in those days, believed that children should only uh, be present when there was work to do. They shouldn't be seen or heard at any other time. Some of you parents wish it was like those old days, maybe. But, but Jesus said, no, don't, don't keep the children away. Let them come to me. Welcome them. Uh, the, the disciples, just like everybody in their day, had their own circle of those people who we want to keep our distance from. And with Jesus, it was, no, I'm not going to regard those old boundaries. He would go right up to the very people, the, the, the ethnicities and the races that the disciples were happy to keep at a distance. Jesus said, no, let them come near too. When there were needy people who were desperate and they came close, there were times when the disciples put their arms out and said, no, Jesus always kept his arms open. And this made them uneasy as well. Jesus was constantly teaching them uh, by example, he was showing them what it would mean to be a part of the community that he intended to build. And we have to learn too. He was saying, listen now, he was saying to them, this is how you should welcome others. Watch me. And he was also saying, and, and it took them a long time to recognize this, he was also saying to them, this is actually how I've welcomed you as well. And maybe you don't see it yet, but one day you will. And thankfully, his followers saw it. And because of that, we can gather together this morning and we can be guided by the words of those who, well, who began to see that the way that Jesus welcomed all of us has to shape our way with others. And they wrote that down and we can, we can benefit together from that guidance if our intention is to grow as the community which Jesus intends. 
And that's our intention. It's to, do, to grow in just that way. And so this morning, we're going to uh, let Paul teach us first about how we're responsible for welcoming others because of Jesus. And so if you look with me now, we're going to start there in Romans 15. There's one single statement there which captures uh, what our theme will be today. In verse 7, uh, Paul writes as follows. Welcome one another. Therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Here in this one statement, uh, Paul has in mind what he's developed prior to this sentiment, and then he unfolds it further as he goes on. Uh, But if we would take our time through the three clauses here, we'll learn about what we're responsible for if we're going to follow Jesus. Uh, Let's start with the first clause there. Welcome one another. Uh, The Greek in, in this moment is quite rich. The word welcome is proslambano. It's a compound word, as so many Greek words are. The prefix pros means something like toward or by the side of, and the verb lambano literally means to seize or to hold tightly in one's hand. The guidance here is grasp a hold of to bring the other towards you. Receive them, stay side by side, and don't let go. A very vivid way of saying, welcome one another. Now this challenge meant something very specific to Paul's first readers, which is clear if you review the material in the previous chapter, chapter 14, which is why Paul says, therefore, in Romans 15, 7. In the church at Rome, listen, now there were circles of distinctive practice within the church, which resulted from different theological outlooks. There were groups who behaved differently from other groups within the one church because of differences in faith. Do you know that this still happens today? Yes. And not only did they believe and behave differently, but this also was happening. Folks in one circle had very strong opinions about folks in other circles, and then they were beginning to behave toward one another in a manner that Paul knew did not fit with what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. Here's what was happening. There was one group that believed you could eat anything you wanted, but then other groups who believed that if you're really spiritually mature, you only eat vegetables. Uh, That was one distinctive. There was another development. There were some who said, in the freedom that is ours in Christ, All days are just equal. But others said, no, no, no. To be a a true person of God, you must regard these holy days as distinctive from the others. And based on their opinions, they were treating each other differently. And what Paul did when he addressed them, listen to this, is he did not tell them who was right and who was wrong from a theological perspective, first of all. And that, listen, that's not because there is no right and wrong, but because that wasn't the most important thing. Neither did he tell them how they should behave Uh, in terms of the days and what they eat, because in Paul's opinion, that also was not the most important thing to address. Instead, he addressed their behavior of being unwelcoming towards one another, because that was really important. And in 14.3, look at what he says. He says this, those who eat must not despise those who abstain. And those who abstain must not pass judgment on those who eat. Uh, Here already in the church, There was this way that people had when they disagreed with one another about theological things and practices, there was a way of looking down on the people who you disagreed with. There was a way of despising them and judging them. And from Paul's perspective, both of these activities are 
wrong, especially because they are unwelcoming. Think about it like this. You can't grasp and hold beside you someone who you despise, can you? Unless you've got a really bad reason for pulling them toward you. Nor can you welcome someone while judging them. It's not possible. And, and so Paul says, don't despise and don't judge. And, and he doesn't just say this because it's not nice to do that. He actually has a theological rationale for giving this guidance. That is, because of what he believes about God, he addresses it in this way. He says, for God has welcomed them. And this is really important. His reason for saying that you should neither despise nor judge those whose theological beliefs and practices are different from yours is because God himself has welcomed them. And it's God's way that should determine our way with others. And this leads Paul to ask a question in verse 4. He asks this, Who are you to pass judgment on servants of another? And what he's doing here is he's asking them to allow their behavior to be determined by their identity. Think through this. Who you are ought to be expressed in the way that you behave. And here they're behaving as if who they are is the judge. But the way it works with God is God welcomes all of us, and God is the master, and everyone who's welcomed by him is one of God's servants. And so the problem with their judgment is that they're behaving as if they've got their wires crossed about who they are because they're all servants. And that's why he goes on to say, uh, very simply, in effect, that only the master is in a position to judge his servants. And that's, that's why he adds this. It is before their own Lord that they stand or fall. Now, what Paul wants for them to do in that moment is to envision the person who's in the other circle who they would like to judge and who they don't like very much and to envision them standing before God who is the judge rather than standing before the the person who's in the other circle who's behaving as if they're the judge. Imagine this now and try this. If you've already got it in your mind, a person who is religiously different than you and they're wrong, let's say, you're you're convinced of that because that's what was happening in Rome. Paul wants you to imagine that person standing not before you as the judge, but rather before God as the judge. And that's what Paul means when he said, it's before their own Lord that they stand or fall. That's an image for judgment. And then he adds this, and this is the end of verse four, and they will be upheld for the Lord is able to make them stand. Paul here is saying, you cannot overestimate the grace that comes through God's judgment. Because God judges in order to hold up and make stand because that's God's goal with us, with every one of us. It is for us to stand before him alone and then on on the grace of his judgment to hold us up and to make us stand because that's God's inclination toward every single person that you'll ever meet, the ones you agree with and the ones you don't agree with too. And Paul knows also, by the way, and maybe you'd admit this, that that's actually not our natural inclination when it comes to judging others. Would you admit that? That we don't really judge other people because we're hoping to help them stand up, but because we love tearing people down, don't we? And and they needed to hear it there. Listen now, this is so critical because to be the community that Jesus intends requires extending the kind of welcome that God demands of us, really. And without paying attention, we will naturally exclude others. I guarantee that. When I was first in youth ministry, Someone who was teaching us about how to work with students told us, 
the students that you work with, even if they've been graciously accepted into your group, you watch. Just a few months will go by in youth ministry and they're going to think they're the insiders and they're going to want to exclude new kids. And he told us, here, there's a, an activity that you can try with your kids which will actually demonstrate this. I did try it when I became a youth pastor. I got seven volunteers and I asked them to stand on one side of the room, shoulder to shoulder. I said, just arms at your side, stand in a circle facing one another. I got another volunteer and said, you're gonna stand on the other side over here. And then one more person who had a timer and it was gonna be their responsibility to start the timer when I said go. And then I gave these instructions. I said, when I say go, Let's see how quickly you can get into this circle. Ready? Go. The timer started. The kid ran across. This group of, uh, of students locked arms, and they immediately uh, pulled in as tightly as they could, and they did everything they could to keep that, that other student out. They kicked. They pushed. He tore, pulled. There was some biting, I think. Eventually got his way in, and the timer stopped. And then I said, what did you notice? And they talked about how, how wonderful it was that they were so good at keeping him out and how hard he tried. But then nobody picked up on the fact that should have been immediately obvious, which is I never ever told this group that they were supposed to keep the kid out. They did that without even thinking of it. And we do that too. And we do it and we don't even know that we're doing it. And there are reasons for this, right? Maybe Maybe it's social conditioning that always and everywhere we go, we're always being taught to define ourselves partly by who's in against who's out. And we maintain that identity by keeping those people out. It starts when you're as little as possible with your family and with strangers, etc. Maybe there are uh, some kind of biological roots in this impulse in us human beings to stay with our kind because others are dangerous. Certainly there's a mixture of sort of ignorance and fear that gets stirred in. Uh, but whatever the roots are, the truth about people of faith, and here's where I want to be personal with us, is that we will, we will find theological reasons for excluding people who don't see things just like we do. And we'll find ethical reasons and outlooks and behaviors to say, this is us, and we'll lock arms, and we'll want to keep others out. That's what was happening in Rome. It will happen in Summit. It will happen in our community here. And what we have to do is to keep our eyes open for it. At least that's what Paul tells us. Maybe it will be very little things like style, how we dress or how we speak. Those things we can leave aside. They're not the real ones that we should be concerned with. Other times, it will be things that amount to expressions of our own faith. Ready for this? Some of us will sing with our eyes open and hands at our side, but then there'll be a few who will lift hands and close eyes. Ooh. <laughs> and if you don't think this is an issue, th there have been people in the last few months who've said, are we going to become that kind of church? To me, they've said that. Uh, will we believe... <laughs> See, now we know where, which side she's on. Um, <laughs> but here are other things. And listen, these things genuinely, genuinely divide Christians. Do we believe that spiritual gifts are still active or have they ceased? Uh, is it speaking in tongues or English? Uh, do we think that the creation account was a literal six days or is that figurative? Uh, what about how we educate our children? Is it faithful to send your kids into the public school or should we all do homeschooling with a Christian curriculum? Uh, should women uh, be equal in leadership or only serving in distinctive roles? Uh, these issues, listen now, Faithful Christians divide up over every one of these. Do you know that? Should you be a Republican since no Democrat could actually follow Jesus? Or should you be a Democrat since no Republican could actually follow Jesus? Like, I'm serious. That is exactly what happens in the world. Here, this is going to make almost all of us uncomfortable. You ready? 
LGBTQ friendly and affirming or not? Maybe that will be the only one you hear on the list. I'm telling you, this is an issue that is dividing people. Do you know that? The third largest denomination in our country is about to split up over this one. Welcome one another means don't just tolerate one another, but recognize your solidarity and mutual dependence, neither of which are affected by the fact that you disagree about theological things. And Paul is not saying that. This is really important. Paul's not saying that because he thinks everybody's right and they're all entitled to their own opinion and it doesn't matter what you really believe about God. Paul would never, ever believe that. He, he dedicated his life to expressing the truth about who God is as clearly as he possibly could. And when he got to the issues where Christians, where people who have been invited together in Christ, where the people of God are dividing up, when he got to those issues, he said, look, I'm gonna tell you a theological conviction that's deeper even than all the other theological convictions. It's that we're one in Christ because God has welcomed us when all of us had the wrong ideas and therefore we are responsible for welcoming one another even though that other person you might say they have the wrong idea no nothing is more important when it comes to the 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 doors in the church is that they're open in order to give everybody room in the community of faith to grow and listen now the growth and the growing is up to god the welcome and the welcoming is up to us and that's what paul believed and he you know why he believed that and he guesses why he believed that That's how it was with Jesus. Paul knew that over and over again, Jesus met resistance because he welcomed people who didn't believe the right things or behave the right way. And that wasn't because Jesus didn't care about what people believed or behaved. It was because Jesus knew deeper in terms of importance than what you think or, or what your convictions are is God's thoughts and God's convictions about you personally. And that is that God is the God who welcomes because he's merciful. And the community has to be shaped in that way if we're going to be his community. And when Jesus encountered the resistance from the outside or from the inside, oh, he was brilliant in the way he responded. Sometimes he responded indirectly with, with a, a very uh, powerful act that was meant to say, welcome each other. Maybe you know this story. Jesus uh, went into a town where there were thousands of people in this crowd that wanted to see him. And he walked right through everybody and he found his way to a tree where there was one guy who no one else wanted to welcome up in that tree. Some of you know the story. You know it was a sycamore tree, don't you? Right? And that guy is the guy that Jesus went to in front of everybody and he said, I want to come to your house and sit at your table today. He was, he was saying indirectly to everybody in the crowd, this is how it goes with God. He comes to the unworthy and says, you're, you're with me. Sometimes Jesus was very direct. Maybe you know the story uh, that Jesus' followers were going from one village to the next. He sent some disciples ahead. The people in Samaria wouldn't welcome them. So the disciples came back and said, hey, Jesus, how about we rain fire down from heaven on these guys? Shall we burn it down? And Jesus rebuked them directly. And he said, no, that's not how it's going to work with us. It's going to be welcome. Other times, the way that Jesus responded to the impulse in the people of God not to welcome others was with a story that he told. That is, he would show them in a story who they were and who God was and how it was going to be if if you were going to be a part of his community. This happened uh, in many places. In Luke, uh, there's one moment which stands out to me in Luke 15. There's a description of the crowd that Jesus was teaching. Watch this. Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's a crowd that's got a lot of people mixed up in it. And they're all there for the same reason, to hear Jesus. 
And in this group, this big crowd, there are some who are unworthy and they know it, but they're there because there's something about the way Jesus speaks. There's also within this crowd, Pharisees and scribes, and, and they're not villains. These are men who are in, in, in entirely in earnest to understand God's word and help people know how to follow it. But there in this moment, they're circled up in a group and now they're locking arms because they're uneasy with the way that Jesus is welcoming sinners and eating with them and the tax collectors and others. And so Jesus responds by telling them a story. In fact, he tells three. Uh, the third of, of these three, uh, I think does the most magnificent job of lifting his point. Here it is. You ready for this? It is that when God welcomes others, instead of grumbling, his people should rejoice. Let that sink in for a moment. If you read all three of the stories, you'll see all three of them are about something that's lost, which is then found, and the appropriate response is celebration instead of grumbling. The third story, let's stay on this one for a bit, is about a father who has two sons. The younger son comes to his dad and he tells him, I'm not going to stay at the farm anymore. I'm done helping you and my brother. I want my inheritance now. And his father gives him the money and he takes that money and he goes far away, far away from his father and his responsibilities. And he squanders everything he's got on prostitutes and parties. He lives it up away from his dad. The money runs out. After it's all spent, a famine strikes the land, and now he gets really desperate. And so he has nowhere else to go but to hire himself out to one of the rich landowners of that country who sends him into the field to feed his pigs. And there he is in this lowest of all moments. And it suddenly occurs to him, you know, it would have been way better for me if I stayed back on the farm. Of course, now that I've behaved as I've, I have, who knows whether I'll be welcomed or not. But even if I was a slave at my father's farm, it would be better than where I am. He wakes up, in a sense, and this is, what he, this is what happens. Look at verse 20 of chapter 15. So he set off, and he went to his father. That is, he decides it's time to go back. And in this moment, as he's walking back toward the farm, can you see what he's hoping for? He's hoping to be welcomed. Do you see that? Now, I want you to think for a moment of something other than this story. And I want you to be honest with yourself here. You don't have to call out here, but are there people who you would never want to be around? Is there a type of person who, if they came into the church and came near you, you would be disgusted? Listen carefully now. Someone who, because of your religious convictions, you are absolutely certain has no place in God's house. I'm asking you to think of this for a very specific reason. The character that I've just described, the younger brother, is for those people in Jesus' crowd who are the Pharisees and the scribes, uncomfortable that Jesus welcomes sinner, sinners, he is the most disgusting person that Jesus could possibly depict for them. The one who should have the least hope ever of being welcomed by God's people. And for very definite reasons. In the first century in this environment, a young man who disrespects his father and doesn't take responsibility for caring for his father on the farm should be thrown in jail. Uh, we know that because there are, uh, there are writers who actually uh, talk about that scenario. Quintilian in the first century actually said, anyone who does this should be thrown in jail. And not only that, but someone who squanders his inheritance on prostitutes 
and parties is so immoral that he has no place amongst God's people. And Jesus crafts this young man in just that way to offend the sensibilities of the Pharisees and scribes. If that weren't enough, not only is he morally and socially unwelcomed, but also he is completely ceremoniously unclean. He was feeding pigs. And for the people of God to be in contact with a pig meant to be physically unwelcomable. And so as he begins to head back, he has very little hope of being received, at least in the eyes and ears of everyone who's first listening to Jesus' story. But then listen to what happens. This is the second part of verse 20. But while he was still far off, his father saw him. Now, if the father sees him when he's a great distance off, it means the father's been looking for him. It means that there wasn't a day that went by when the father didn't think of the fact that his son wasn't there with him. And you'll see this in a moment. This father, which Jesus crafts, is a father whose love is stronger than the ugliness of his son. It's a father whose care and concern for his son is not diminished even one bit despite the fact that his son has been so utterly disrespectful to him that everyone would have agreed the only place he should go to is jail. This is a father who each and every night as he settled his head down on the, on the pillow would have been thinking, will tomorrow be the day that news comes that my son has perished or will at last I finally see him once again? And on this day, he's looking at the horizon when over, over the horizon comes a silhouette of his son. And I'll tell you what right now, that only a parent who has lived through the anguish of having an adult child disappear and go into oblivion, only that kind of parent can imagine what this father was feeling. And some of you can. But as he comes and begins to come close, look at what the story that Jesus tell, tells has. He was filled with compassion and he ran and he put his arms around him and he kissed him. And now try to imagine what it would be like to be that son. The son starts to stammer and re repeat the, the sort of speech that he put together in hopes of being treated like a slave by his father, but he's not even able to finish before the father says to his servants, go and get him a robe and get, a, get him a ring and get him sandals. And what that means in effect in this culture is right now, go get things that say the visible words that I want to say, which is I love my son. I'm so glad he's back. This outsider is welcomed in without any question. I am completely ready to receive this unworthy and mess of a son of mine. Thank goodness he's back and he embraces him and he kisses him. Can you imagine a reception like that? If it's hard for you to imagine, then I think you have a clear sense of what Jesus meant to depict in his story. It's senseless. That's what it is. It's in a way, it's absurd that the father should welcome this son back in that way. But listen now, Jesus was telling the story because he wanted everyone in that crowd, the sinners and the tax collectors, as well as the Pharisees and the scribes, to see how it would be with God when it came to welcome. How would it be when it came to homecoming? Jesus wanted them to see that. And listen now, I want us to see it because I want us to grow into the kind of community that Jesus intends us to be. And he does have intentions for us. Paul knew that the welcome of Jesus was meant to affect the way that it was in Rome. And, and I know this, and we all ought to know this. Jesus' way of welcoming should affect our way of welcoming. What can we see about his way of welcoming that can condition our way? There are things which stand out if we slow down here. Here's the first thing I see. It is that Jesus' welcome is unmerited. He does not keep the door locked until certain conditions have been met. 
Just as the Father welcomes the completely unworthy Son, Jesus extends his welcome to people who do not deserve it. And he was not, listen now, he was not a vanguard or a pioneer in this sense. It was the God of the people of Israel who said to them over and over again, you've been unfaithful, but I'm ready to have you back. Uh, Because the way it works with Jesus is that the condition for being his is that you're ready to recognize that you need to be saved and that you're lost without him. Someone said an amen quietly. In Luke 19.10, Jesus' words are recorded like this. The Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. For Jesus and for God, the way it works with welcome is that as soon as a person's ready to return, the door's open because his welcome is for the unworthy. Uh, Our welcome also must be unmerited. If we're going to be the community that Jesus intends, we're responsible for welcoming people who don't deserve it. That's the first thing I see in Jesus' welcome, the way that he shows it in the story. There's a second, uh, maybe deeper quality in the welcome. And in effect, it's the ground upon which that extension of welcome to the unworthy is built. It is that Jesus' welcome is merciful. And this is really important. There's a motive in God beneath his welcome. There's, There's an actual movement in God's heart in relationship to those who are like this younger son, unworthy. There's a movement in his heart toward them which is the motive that causes God to open the door in effect or to run with compassion and and embrace and kiss. It is that he's merciful and his mercy, it has no end. It's inexhaustible. It's new every morning. His his mercy will never come to an end. Does some of you know that word of God from Lamentations? When you are far from God, he awaits your return. And if you will come back, he will receive you as the father welcomed the son because that's who God is. He's merciful. Look at the promise of God to his people, Israel, That was spoken to Jeremiah and through him. This is Jeremiah 3.12. Return faithless Israel, says the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am merciful. Do you see how plain it is there? It's God's determination not to base his reception upon merit, but rather not to look upon others in anger, but, but upon the perspective that comes from his mercy. And if If we're going to be a community like the community that Jesus intended to build, then we also will have to be ones whose attitude toward others are, first of all, merciful. And this is what I mean. Let's be very practical. It would be a success if others thought about Renaissance Church and said, what's that church like? And the first thought was, that's a church that's really merciful. They have people in there who are a total mess, and they welcome them right in. They're merciful. Gosh, listen, let me add this. I didn't think of this. Someone might think, what part can I have in the mission? This is a real risk, but I'll be honest. If you are a mess and you're such a mess that you can't help out at all and you think, how could I have a hand in the mission? Maybe it's to be honest about what a mess you are and that's your part in the mission so that you give others a chance to be helpers and show what the community of faith is like. It's a community that is unmerited and then it's merciful. Do you see that? Yeah, I'll tell you right now, the enemy doesn't want anyone to be honest about how hard it is for them. And this is why... Listen, this is the third quality of Jesus' welcome. This is magnificent. His welcome is healing. And someone might have the impression, as I preach, and as I read the passage from Romans, and as I enumerate all the ways Christians are different, someone might think, oh, he thinks that everybody's welcome and it doesn't matter whether you're right or wrong. That's the kind of person he is. No, the welcome of God is healing. And by that I mean, when we are welcomed, that's when we begin to be healed of our faithlessness. Because God is the one who can do that for us. And he does it in the community that welcomes. 
We can't do that for each other. God does it for us. And he does it for us when we come to him and then let him, the only one who's capable of doing it with justice and mercy, let him heal us rather than trying to do it for one another or ourselves. Here, look at this. God welcomes us though unworthy, but he loves us too much to leave us there. Jesus doesn't wait for us to get it right in order to welcome us. He welcomes us so he can begin to help us get it right. Do you hear the difference? Look at how it's put in Jeremiah 3.22. Return, O faithless children, I will heal your faithlessness. That's how it works with God. He invites us to return even though we're faithless and he will do the healing. Can you see it? It's what was in Jesus' story, I think, the true motivation for the father's open door to the younger son, it was so that he could be cleaned up and restored to fellowship and begin to become a part of the family at the table every night and at work every day to the glory of God. Do you see it? Imagine, imagine now that we were a community that let that kind of welcome from God shape our welcome of others. I'll tell you, there's two things that we'd have to say, first of all. It is that you have to acknowledge and accept that you've been welcomed by God in Christ even though you didn't merit it and that you did it because of his, that he did that because of his mercy for you and he's done that to help you and to heal you. And once you've got that in hand, then you're ready for the real challenge. Do you remember why Jesus told this story really? It was because there was a group, a circle in that crowd that was locking arms and didn't want to let the outsiders in. So now you put yourself in their position and you have to be honest with yourself here. It's gonna be really hard for you to see how you do this. I'm sure of it. It's hard for me to see how I do it. But by God's grace, we'll be able to see. But you have to put yourself in the position of seeing how am I locking arms in this community that I'm a part of and keeping others out? Because there is a third character in Jesus' story who shows us what's going to happen unless God saves us from our intention, our inclination to, to judge people and push them out. It's the older brother. Okay, imagine this. All that time he'd been working while his brother was off. You can see how it would have been harder for him to do his job, right, without his brother there. And then in Jesus' story, that older brother is actually out working in the fields and he starts to come back toward the house when he hears the sound of music and dancing at his father's house. He he, he grabs one of the other servants and says, hey, what's going on back at home? And he tells him, your brother came back. Your dad is so happy that he had the fatted calf slaughtered. And there's a great big celebration going on right now for him. How would you feel? I'll tell you what. The older brother is so angry that he doesn't want to go in. Here, this is how it says in Jesus' story. This is verse 28. Then he became angry and refused to go in. He stood outside of that celebration, in effect saying, if he's allowed to be in there, I don't want any part of it at all. If he's welcomed, then I don't want to be. And here, what Jesus is showing is absolutely crucial for us to see, and all of us need to see this, that if we're going to try to meddle with the invitation list that God has extended, and we're gonna try to make sure there are certain people who we say, we're gonna cross them off the list, that what's going to happen is we're going to end up crossing ourselves off the list. If you want to exclude someone else from God's grace, you can be sure of one thing. You will exclude yourself from the celebration that he wants you to come into. 
And we know he wants even this older brother to come in because this is what happens. His father came out and began to plead with him. That is, the father didn't stay inside and say, oh, if he's going to be so self-righteous, then forget him. He went out and pled with him and said, listen to me, son. I love you more than you've recognized. All these days that you've been working in the field, you forgot that everything that's mine is also yours. You have full access to me and everything that is mine. And listen now, here, your brothers come back. We have to celebrate. Come into the party. Don't exclude yourself because you want to exclude others. And that's in effect what he says to the, to the son. And he, he puts it in very clear terms as to why that is what he should do at the very end of Jesus' story. We had to celebrate and rejoice, the father says, because this brother of yours, he wants... He wants this older brother to see who he's excluding, and it's his own brother. And in faith, listen to this, in faith, we are called to believe that every person we'll ever meet is someone for whom Christ died and who God has the door open for that person because he wants them also to recognize that they're a son or a daughter of God's by grace. And so he says, it's your brother. He was dead and has come to life. That's what happens when we return to God. We go from being dead to alive. And what God wants is for everyone to come back for those who are lost to be found. As he said, he was lost and he is found. Here, there's one more quality of Jesus' welcome, which we must grasp. And it's the most important one for us to end with this morning. And it's this, that Jesus' welcome is to be shared. Look again at Romans 15, 7. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. God's welcome can only be received if it's passed along to others. If you want to exclude people from his welcome, you only end up excluding yourself, just like the older brother. If there are people who you won't be around, you may end up removing yourself from God's celebration. And note that according to Paul, Jesus' welcome of us and others is what causes God's glory to increase. And that's also clear in Jesus' stories. In all three of them, the cause for celebration for God is that those people who are lost are finally restored. And if we're going to be the community that Jesus intends, that also should be our greatest glory, to glorify God by welcoming any and everyone whose face is turned back and is willing to come. Shall we? Yes, let's pray. God, teach us to welcome others as you have welcomed us. Teach us to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us to, to your glory. Uh, teach us to be people who are always on the lookout for the ways that we will want to lock arms with others who agree with us or think like us or believe like us and save us uh, from wanting to exclude. Help us to remember that it is before you that each and every one of us stands and you alone. Help us to remember that you are our judge and that you are able and you, you also are willing to make us stand. Help us receive your grace for us, even as we ourselves have been outsiders. Uh, help us receive that you've taken us in, and help us rejoice in it, and help us be eager to welcome others. In your name we pray. Amen.